Hey, I just wanted to give you all an introduction to Mixed Theory. And here we go. Hey, 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 everyone. It's your girl, Amber Phoenix, and we are back with Miss Lola Oshankoya of Neither Both. And I am so happy she's here. We are going to be discussing some things that are near and dear to both of our hearts. And it happens to be one of the things that Miss Lola specializes in. Lola, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Awesome. I'm so grateful that you're joining me here today. Once again, I'm so happy to have you back. Yeah, thank you for asking me back. I'm really excited to be here. Yes. Oh my goodness. We have some things in store for you all. And this is just the beginning. Would you agree, Miss Lola? Agreed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So today we're going to be discussing a little bit about depression and anxiety and trauma. I invited Lola on because again, she is a licensed clinician who gets to work with people every day, excuse me, all day on these things that plague our communities. And I thought it would be honorable to have a professional from the community come on and discuss more about depression, anxiety, and trauma. And Lola, do you have anything to say about that before we jump into the questions? I don't think so, other than I just... I hope people can listen with an open mind, open heart. I know that there's a lot of stigma in our communities about mental health and depression, anxiety, and trauma, um, but these are normal things that everybody deals with all the time. And it doesn't mean you're crazy. It doesn't mean you're sick. It means that you're having reactions to real things that are happening out in the world. So I'm excited to get into the conversation. Yes, that is beautiful. Thank you for prefacing what we're going to jump into, because I think that's important too. like you said, there is a stigma surrounding mental disparity or mental health, if you will. And the more we can have open forums about those diseases, then the more that they become the norm instead of uh, something that hush hush. So yeah, I actually I did want to ask you. I noticed when we were discussing the interview that you um, seemed to make the point to call it a disease. You didn't mm -hmm. use general like mental health terminology, and I'm curious like what that means for you to frame it in that way. Thank you for asking. Uh, you know, I read a lot about metaphysical health and um, holistic healing, and they often in the community reference mental health, quote unquote, uh, health issues as mental diseases. So, you know, D-I-S, that little dash in there, then ease, E-A-S-E. And for me, what that means is it's unnerving. It's uneasy when we're dealing with those complications of our mental space. And it's not a part of who we are as beings. Rather, it's something that's triggering our mental space. And so it's uneasy is the best way for me to put it. Does that make sense? Because I can go into it. Yeah. A okay. No, absolutely. And the place that we actually saw each other for the first time was a forum on mental health mm -hmm. in communities of color. And I do think it's important that we develop new language around it that's not so triggering so that we can all see it as just a thing that happens that doesn't need to impact our sense of identity, but is something that we deal with. 
You, again, worded that beautifully. And that's exactly why I believe that the community uses it as that. And that's why I adopted it within my language, because, again, I'm like, hey, this is something that happens to everyone. And so many people are afraid to talk about it because it does come up as something that we shouldn't discuss, as something that should be shunned. And if we look at it with a new lens, then we begin to develop that new language around it. And so I found so much comfort in reading it as a dis-ease instead of like a mental health issue or disease as we usually see it written. But breaking it apart, it really allows you to see the wording and say, okay, this is something that is just uncomfortable that I'm going through. And if I get the right tools to work through it, I can get back to who I am and I can get my mind back out of dis-ease. So thanks for asking that. That that is a powerful question. So going into it and just jumping forward, will you define depression and anxiety from a clinician's point of view? Sure. And I guess the way that I'll approach it is as a clinician that works with diagnosis, that works with insurance companies, I want to start out with a little bit of why we look at names or groupings of symptoms for anxiety, depression, and trauma. Yes. Um, Generally, the way I explain it to the people that come to see me is insurance companies require a diagnosis in order to pay for your services. That's the main reason I would use a diagnosis like depression, anxiety, or trauma. Um, They don't want to pay for things that they don't deem as unnecessary. So they look at medical necessity for the diagnosis of what is the problem that we are treating in therapy. So I always ask people not to take it. I mean, being diagnosed is a, it can be many things. It can be disturbing. It can be affirming. If you have felt that something's been a problem for a while and you didn't have a name for it, it can be a comfort and a way to get started. And in terms of like the mental health field, we create, well, old white men a long time ago started creating um, diagnoses so that we could understand like, here's how this thing shows up. And maybe if we group these things together and understand these people are experiencing the same thing, maybe we can develop treatments that work for everybody. But again, developed by white men in the early 1900s. And so is that going to fit for everybody? No. Is that going to fit for people today? Not necessarily. Is that going to fit for people who are not old white men? Maybe Mm -hmm. not, but it's a framework. So I like to explain the framework. And so if we're looking at, I can go through each of them. What they want to know when you're putting a diagnosis together is what are your symptoms? How severely do you experience them? Do you have enough symptoms to meet the criteria, usually about five or six? And then are they impacting your ability to function either personally, interpersonally or socially or occupationally or at school? So are your symptoms severe enough and frequent enough to be impacting your life is what people want to know in terms of a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And why would they want to know that, Lola? Uh, For money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you're still you're speaking from a clinician's and insurance point of view. 
Right. Okay. So from the insurance point of view, they want to make sure you meet the criteria for a diagnosis so that when they're paying for your services, they feel like it's necessary. They don't want to pay for anything unnecessary. That makes um, sense. I was going to say real quick, and that question also was coming from a standpoint of, because that's a really good thing for people to be aware of too, mm-hmm. to manage where they're at with their you know, mental space and mental health, but proceed. (laughs) Um, You asked, what's the purpose? I was saying, why would people want to know that? But then I kind of went outside of the lines of insurance into Uh, like, you know, that's a actually was like, why would people want to know that? Um, But I can circle back once you go through the framework. Well, and when you said, why would people want to know that? Do you mean people as in people who are experiencing it or? Yeah. Okay. Um, Sometimes people might want to know that because it it puts a name on something that they're experiencing that maybe they hadn't thought how to articulate before, mm-hmm. or they might want to understand that other people are experiencing something similar. So I don't say it's all bad, but it's for a reason. And I think it's important to understand the reasons. I think some people get labeled in such a way and for such a period of time that they begin to internalize the label. And I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it should become part of who you are. It's something that's happening to you. It can be temporary. It can be worked with. It can be healed. So I hope that answers some of the question. It definitely does. Thank you. Because I was also thinking just like if we, because of this stigma, especially in communities of color, paying attention to the frequency, the symptoms, the effects, is it affecting whatever you're going through, affecting the way you interact with your people, the way you show up at work, the way you go into community, then take that forward and seek the help that would really help you balance and get. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I was going to, too. I got excited real quick to point that out and (laughs) kind of was like, oh, out of framework, but let me jump in and say, people pay attention because it's okay. And we just want to get ourselves healthy. We want to get to a point where we're able to function and these symptoms become less, but I'm sure all of this is going to unfold. So I love the fact that you're unleashing or unveiling the framework of why you have to actually label what's happening from an Mm -hmm. insurance point of view. Yeah, it's important to know. So in terms of each of the things that we're looking at with depression, symptoms of depression, I'll just kind of name some of them off. Having a depressed mood, which is not just sadness, but it's deeper than that. Diminished interest or not enjoying things the, the, the way that you used to. If you used to have hobbies that make you happy and suddenly you don't feel like doing them anymore, that could be a symptom. Sleep problems, either sleeping too much, too little, Problems falling asleep, problems staying asleep, that can be a symptom of depression. Just a general sense of fatigue, being really tired even if you're getting enough rest. Changes in appetite, so eating a lot more, eating a lot less. Feeling excessively guilty, like you can't do anything right or like things are your fault in a way where you're taking too much responsibility. Some people experience moving or speaking more or less than usual, and usually it's slower. Depression generally means to slow down. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, just kind of moving in slow motion, sort of. And then the last symptom is the most serious one about feeling like you'd be better off dead or thoughts of self-harm. And so that can be either passive or active. And I want people to know that it is normal to have thoughts that are passive. I'm not going to say it's healthiest, <laughs> but it's not, it's not abnormal to have thoughts of like, I don't see the point in living. 
I don't, and it, that doesn't mean that you want to die necessarily. Right. Um, and, and so people get scared to talk about it and clinicians and doctors are taught that you have to pay attention to that. We are mandated reporters. So when people talk to us about thoughts of self-harm, if you have a plan, the means to do it, we have to report that. But it doesn't necessarily mean you want to kill yourself if you are just thinking passively about like, I don't see the point in living. Right. So that's, it's a whole spectrum of things that's very delicate and there's a range. And I like that you brought up the difference amongst the two of really like having a plan versus wondering what your purpose is and why you're living. And maybe I am better off just not being here. Right. That's a huge spectrum. And touching touching base on that is important because at the end of the day, like talking about it again can really help you get out of your mind and into action. You can talk about it with trusted people, trusted professionals who will help you see your way through it. And you may not ever get to that point where you have a plan. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking, you said depression is slowing down. So how would I frame this? If that's slowing down, do you think the act of speaking about it and maybe getting some points to be active, whether it's not so much a medical plan even, but really getting into that mind space of creativity and taking action and doing things that you love again, to get outside of your head and into movement. Does that make sense? And this is a a question. Like as a treatment or as an antidote to moving slower? Yeah, as an antidote and a treatment plan. Because again, I recognize what you're saying. It's It's a whole spectrum. People are different in every way. So treatment is going to be very specific and individualized. I remember our first episode together, you were talking about with things like depression, exercise even. And I'm probably thinking ahead, but (laughs) you're still in defining. And I'm like, oh, how can we get people outside of their head? Or what can they do when they first start feeling the effects of depression? Yeah, that is true. If you can reach for it, because depression comes in levels too. Mm -hmm. And so if you can reach for it, yes, activity is a wonderful thing. Some people have trouble reaching for it if they're depressed. But in terms of counteracting it, being active... Tapping into creativity can be powerful things to try to counteract what's happening. And there, yes, there's definitely been studies that shown for some people, exercise is as effective as taking an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask your take on that, but please move forward. I'll stop trying to be so excited <laughs> about all of this greatness that you're sharing with because it's so relevant and I. Again, I'm just so grateful that you're here and taking the time to express it to the community. Sure. So we can shift over to anxiety then to just define what that is. And again, it's a set of symptoms. So the symptoms we're looking at are an anxious mood, feeling like you're worrying too much about different things, having difficulty controlling the worry, like you don't want to worry about it and you're trying to think about something else, but you can't help it. Another symptom is trouble relaxing, feeling restless, feeling irritable, and then sometimes just an overwhelming sense of dread. Like there's nothing that you can put a finger on that's that you know is going to happen, but just feeling like something's bad is going to happen all of the time can be a symptom of anxiety. Mm, okay. So those are the ones we're looking at there. And then with trauma, um, trauma is very complex. Um, 
can mean a lot of different things. Originally with trauma, we're looking at probably PTSD or complex PTSD. And, you know, when I was in school in like 2010 to 2012, it was kind of radical that, well, at least I wasn't finding a lot said that racism could be traumatic, but things have changed (laughs) quite a lot in the last decade or so. Um, But with trauma, it was originally developed as something that only soldiers got coming back from war. That was how people first started thinking about trauma. Um, Yeah. Thinking that it had to be like a single event or like a bunch of big, scary events. But we now know that trauma can be a series of smaller events. We talk about big T traumas, the big events, and then small T traumas or repetitive things that happen again and again. And with the most recent updates to our DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, where we find all the diagnoses for the mental health field, um, Mm -hmm. we're starting to acknowledge complex trauma, which is more of those repeated over the course of a lifetime, smaller traumas that happen to us that just compound on each other. So trauma can look a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. But go ahead. Can you give an example of the complex trauma? Yeah, it would be like a systematic abuse um, and maybe emotional abuse where you're not seeing scars, but someone is over the course of a long period of time putting you down, um, Mm -hmm. undermining you, calling you stupid. It can be physical abuse. Uh, where maybe you've never had a broken bone, but you're getting physically abused over the course of many years. And like I mentioned before, it can be racism. It can be microaggressions experienced over your lifetime that altogether impact you. Or it can be like a combination of different things, Mm -hmm. Um, like a variety of those kinds of abuses or aggressions. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. I thought that would definitely help people in the audience take note of what that can look like on many different levels. So thank you. You're welcome. So with trauma, we're always looking at the person we're talking to. Have they been exposed to death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury or actual or threatened sexual violence, either through it happening to them, witnessing it or learning that a relative or close friend was exposed And then sometimes they talk about professionals who have been exposed to other people going through horrific things. The pandemic is a perfect example. The healthcare workers have to be so traumatized being exposed to that many things again and again. Right. So we talk about something that's actually like an identifiable thing that's happened and it doesn't have to be big. It can be, or it doesn't have to be like a disaster event. Again, it can be a series of things that has happened to you. Um, Mm -hmm. But then it's about how we reacted. So Two people can witness the same car crash. One can walk away and process the memory correctly. And so when they think back on the car crash, they might remember details. They know that it was bad, but they don't feel a strong emotion still associated with it. Where another person, it impacts them forever. They can't get into a car. They're experiencing a lot of symptoms in reaction to what happened. Just because you've been through a trauma does not mean you're traumatized. Mm. It matters how you react to what happened to you. We look at that in a few different categories for trauma. Like Mm -hmm. um, there's a re-experiencing. So you might have unwanted memories that intrude on your life. You might have nightmares, flashbacks where you feel the thing is happening again. Mm. Um, Emotional distress or physically reacting when you're reminded of that. So upsetting reminders. Yeah. 
Um, another category is avoiding anything that reminds you of the trauma. So trying not to think, feel, or be around things that remind you of what happened. Mm. It changes the way you think. That's another category of trauma symptoms where suddenly you have negative thoughts or feelings that either began or worsened after the trauma. And those can be feelings about yourself, feelings about the world. You can lose memory or have a crystal clear memory of the trauma. You might exaggerate blame on yourself or others for causing trauma. You could feel isolated. You could suddenly have like a negative slant to the feeling in your voice. You could experience that diminished interest I talked about before with depression mm -hmm. or difficulty experiencing positive emotions. So just that your ways of thinking and feeling can change after a trauma. And then the last category of symptoms around trauma is arousal and reactivity. So it's like the people who like you walk into a room and you will not sit with your back to the door because you have to know what everybody is doing in the room. Yeah, It can be irritability or aggression. It can be risky or destructive behavior. It can be a heightened startle response. So somebody taps you on the shoulder and you punch them in the face because you weren't expecting it. Right. Um, difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, just your body reacts to stress in a different way after trauma. That's another set of symptoms. So that's what we're looking at in terms of trauma. Mm -hmm. I do specialize in trauma. So there's a lot more to it than just the symptoms. And I can probably talk further later about how it impacts you. But that's kind of what we're looking at with depression, anxiety and trauma symptoms. Beautiful, beautiful descriptions as far as the way that you delivered. I know it can be hard to hear from many out there. Uh, I will put a trigger warning in the show notes so that people are aware of the detail that you're you're prepared to go in. Um, and again, it's just to really serve everyone out there who is wondering, who wants to know more, who is dealing with it themselves. And it's a look at this as a support rather, just trying to get into the nuts and bolts of what those three things look like from a clinician's standpoint, from insurance standpoint, what those insurance people, the people who are going to help pay for the services are looking for to actually go ahead and pay for the services on your behalf. So again, that's why it was a beautiful description. You said it so crystal clear that uh, I'm very, very thankful. I wrote some notes down. Okay. How do the two relate to trauma as far as uh, depression and anxiety? Well, they can be happening at the same time. People can experience both trauma and depression or both trauma and anxiety or all three. Mm. And as you might have heard in some of these, some of the symptoms overlap and that's common in a lot of diagnoses. And so that's why it's just, it's interesting to think about like the symptoms that people experience, you can put them together in any number of ways. And so yeah, I, I always talk to people about how does this fit for you or how does this not fit for you? And when you feel this way, do you attribute it more to depression, to anxiety? to trauma. Anxiety and trauma are very closely linked because trauma affects your danger and safety response, which is also really closely related to anxiety. Going through trauma and experiencing trauma reactions can be very depressing. So sometimes people develop depression because they haven't been able to deal with trauma. Anxiety and depression can happen simultaneously without trauma. So you can experience one, you can experience a combination, you can experience all, and they impact each other. It's not always like a clear line 
between everything. I did notice how the language used a lot of them, like you said, did overlap with the changes of sleeping, the changes of the way you think, uh, the interactions with, again, the people you're closest to or the community around you. So I do see how those things can be a comorbid existence amongst the diseases, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. It can be. And as far as trauma and your specialization, why was that something you chose? Well, my first real internship in grad school was at African American Family Services, and they happened to do a lot of trauma trainings for us. And I remember one of the people I worked with, Dr. Hill, was like, so are you going to specialize in trauma? And I was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't so really planned on it. <laughs> Dr. Hill saw something in you then. Maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. (laughs) I I honestly had not thought about it that way before. (laughs) You know, when they are mentors, you know, they have their way of saying, hey, we're going to push you towards your greatness because you've been practicing in this area. And I'm going to go, hey, are you you're going to specialize in this, huh? Wink, wink. So so you you were working in Dr. Hill. Yeah. Yeah, well, and with our population, we had to be knowledgeable about trauma, just with everything that the black community goes through, especially in a place like Minnesota. I mean, we had to. We weren't going to be an effective clinic, not teaching each other about trauma and getting trainings and learning from our clients. So that I just happened to get some trauma training while I was there. And then I remember one of the very first days I was in that internship, um, there was an in-service on EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a fairly common trauma treatment. And I thought it was so fascinating from my perspective in the mental health training I'd had until then at grad school, I'm very interested in early memories and in when you're very young, like three to five, we don't retain much, most of us, Mm -hmm. but the things that we do retain are very important. And usually they tell us something about how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we find our meaning or our place in the world. And EMDR specifically works with trauma, but we're trying to find the earliest memory associated with trauma so that if we reprocess it, it's not continuing to bother us in the present moment. So I guess to back up a little bit, trauma can be defined as anything that was beyond your ability to cope with it at the time that you experienced it. So it overwhelmed your ability to cope in the moment, which is why it can be a big natural disaster, or it can be, I was little and I didn't know how to handle this, or someone confused me or overwhelmed me or an event was just more than I had the skills to know how to deal with at the time, which is why it can be so broad. The experiences that people experience as traumatic can be so broad. But basically, so you experience something like that and it doesn't get processed like a regular memory. Like if you think about what you ate for breakfast yesterday, there's likely not a lot of emotion tied to it. Whereas if you think back to a traumatic event, sometimes there's a lot of emotion. Sometimes thinking about it long enough, you can feel like you're back in it. Often trauma is associated with a negative assessment of yourself in some way. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at a traumatic memory and use EMDR, what we're looking to do is process that memory so you can think about it like yesterday's breakfast. You might have some details, you might remember that it was bad, but it's not impacting you today. It's not overwhelming you emotionally today and you don't feel like you're back in it. 
Mm, Okay. What are ways you would reprocess those emotions to get them associated with yesterday's breakfast, if you will? Okay. We have to go back through it. But the tricky thing is a lot of times talking about old traumas will re-traumatize you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm trying to answer your question as simply as possible. We have to go back to the memory, understand what happened, disconnect the negative association that we make with ourselves that we're a bad person, that we don't have control, that we're not safe, that we should have done something better, or that we did something wrong, that we're bad. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to disconnect from that belief about ourselves We have to give the memory more context so that we can decrease the emotional charge that goes along with the memory Mm -hmm. um, and tie it to more healthy, adaptive beliefs about ourselves. Like if the idea we had about ourselves at the time of the trauma is I'm not safe, the world is not safe for me, I'm not safe, I'll never be safe. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to begin to tie that to a network of memories that shows that we are safe or that we can be safe. Because if you're walking around in the world today because of a memory that happened when you were eight years old about never being safe, you're going to look at the world as a very scary place, not as a world that you can learn to navigate and that you can create your own safety in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, And people can look at processing trauma as talking about it. Sometimes that is effective for people, especially if they don't have a lot of complexity to their trauma. If you tell your story and you realize you survived, sometimes that's enough to just like decrease that emotional charge. But when you've been through a series of events that keep confirming this same idea about yourself, like racism, like there's something wrong with me for being black. There's something wrong with me um, because everything I've ever been told in media, this is extreme, of course, and you know, there's a lot of discourse now. But if you're a kid, and you're experiencing a lot of racism, your teachers are assuming you're stupid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your teachers are assuming you're violent. Mm -hmm. Your community is treating you a certain way. You're getting microaggressions from the white people that you're in contact with. That's Mm going to really like confirm something about who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's going to impact the way you show up in the world for the rest of your life. And if you can get some context on that and some healing, it can change the way that you operate in the world. The world can still be racist, but you can take yourself out from underneath that and be all that you are as a person. That's kind of my, um, what I've tried to work on in racialized trauma Mm -hmm. in my practice. Is that making sense? Does that answer the question? That does. And the key point you made too is um, the fact that everyone's different. Everyone experiences trauma differently. Everyone reacts differently because perspective is different. So, Mm -hmm. you know, some people will be able to talk and do their family and friend therapy, but for others, what you specialize in would be very helpful because it, it needs to go deeper. It's beyond, you know, skin deep and people need those additional tools. I don't want to use your wording, but definitely get from under that and go into the world and show up more as themselves, their authentic selves, and not as a person who experienced the trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So no, I think you're doing great work. And as far as you just working in that clinic and going beyond that, there has to be a passion underneath your practice 
for you to go into your own practice as far as the building and uh, the LLC, the business that you've built. It has to go beyond what just you've learned. You've definitely held a soft spot for it, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it definitely comes from personal experience um, in therapy as a client, for me, I didn't have, I never found therapists who were bringing up race and the impacts of race on what I was experiencing. I went to therapy for depression um, and I just felt like if we could get at the root of this issue, maybe I, it wouldn't keep returning. Right. Um, there were things that were upsetting. There were things that tangible things that were happening in the present, but I really felt like my race experiences as a kid were really impacting me at core and how I showed up in the world. Mm-hmm. But, and I wanted to talk about it, but I was, I didn't know how to bring it up. I had a variety of therapists, some white, some of color, but right. nobody was really bringing it up. And yeah. I felt like if we could talk about that, that would open up a lot. And so when I was ready to go to school, I did study and I studied a lot of mixed race. And I just, anytime I could, that's what I wanted to research was mixed race and what was specific about our experiences. And so, um, yeah, when it came time to go to a a school for counseling and to think about my practice, I always wanted to open up a practice and I always advocated for therapists to begin bringing up race themselves, not wait for a client to bring it up, not wait to know how racial dynamics are affecting the therapy. Yeah. So my Mm-hmm. No, I think you and you can go forward, but I want to give praise to that because it sounds like you actually became the change you wanted to see in the world. Word to Gandhi, yes. of course. But, <laughs> <laughs> and that's beautiful because, you know, we can't change the world until we change ourselves. And you definitely took the steps to go forward and find solace and look for that additional help beyond your personalized community to get healing. And some people just don't do that. They're not equipped to know how or have that self-awareness like, hey, this is going beyond where I'm just comfortable talking to friends or family about it. I need to go and see professionals who can help me get a better perspective on where I'm at so I can move forward. And you did that. Then you came out of it, went to school for it, and now are advocating that more therapists talk about huge issues like race during their their sessions. So, again, praise. Thank you. Definitely. And I felt like I cut you off. Were you going to say something? Yeah. So it definitely came from my own experiences. And I realized when I was in grad school, I was trying because you get to create a thesis, you get to decide what you want to study and what you want your final paper of grad school to be about. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely was trying to major in myself <laughs> to understand <laughs> yeah. like, what was it about being mixed that at the core of my being um, made me feel like I didn't belong, made it hard for me to connect to people and things like that. And I did a lot of my own self-exploration through writing, through just personal journaling, blogging, and then coming upon communities like Midwest Mixed, where we would have access to other people with similar experiences to just talk about it in safe space. So really like the community building aspect, the self-exploration, the identity development has been so important to improving my mental health, improving my sense of identity and how I show up in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't know if that was going to work in terms of creating a practice. I thought it might be too specialized. And is anybody thinking this hard about it? Mm -hmm. Cut to 2021 and (laughs) you see all these mixed 
things mm-hmm. here and there and popping up on Instagram and yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. you really, that's what you want to do. You want to become specialized because at the end of the day, you can't serve everyone. And right, there's, right. there's a special place for what you're doing. And I think it was brilliant that you came up with it. I told you last episode, I didn't know such a practice existed at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled to know that there is you within my hometown, pretty well <laughs> outside of it, but not far away. <laughs> and so our hometown, and it's just amazing work that you're doing. What would you suggest those experiencing trauma, anxiety, and depression do to manage their mental space? Well, I would say don't isolate as much as possible. Um, It can be very compelling to just keep it to yourself, but you can find people to talk to. That's important just in terms of knowing that you're not alone, because a a lot of thinking through these things sometimes can make you feel like there's something wrong with me that other people don't experience this. But all of these things are very, very common and taking good care of yourself. But that starts in my opinion, with self-compassion. So I think that's the number one Mm -hmm. thing that you can think of. We all tend to be really hard on ourselves and judge ourselves, but this is just normal reactions to abnormal circumstances. And so if you can just be kind to yourself and know like, you know, I'm doing my best, I'm doing the best I can to survive life right now, especially in the past year, which I know we'll get to later, but just acknowledging that you're not trying to do anything wrong. You're doing the best you can. You're in pain and you're trying to just survive. So talking to people, taking good care of yourself, trying to eat as healthy as you can. Nutrition does impact your mental health. Tons of sugar is uh, addicting and depressing because right. um, it messes with your physiological system. It brings you up and then it crashes you. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is not good for any of these. Alcohol is a, a depressant. It can. It's very effective, quick and easy in disconnecting you from your feelings, but long-term it is a depressant, so it's going to bring you down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although... Again, if you if that's what you're doing right now, it is okay. You are doing the best you can and it's probably a good idea to investigate other ways to help cope and counteract what you're trying to counteract with any substances. I don't have a <laughs> positive or negative on marijuana. Um Right. For some people, it does help with anxiety. For other people, it triggers anxiety. So you've got to know what works for you. I don't condone. I don't say it's terrible, but just be careful with substances. And some people would say being careful with substances, be careful with medications. So medications is another way. It's a personal decision for everybody, medication or substances to treat what's happening. But Mm -hmm. you want to make sure that what you're doing to try to cope and treat is actually consistently helpful for you in the long term. If you don't have people to talk to, can you write? Can you read? Can you follow some accounts that are inspirational? All of these diseases are associated with your thinking. And a lot of our wellness begins with our thought processes. And so it would do you well to just begin noticing your thoughts as they come up. Notice if your thoughts make you feel good or bad. Notice if you try to change your thoughts just a little bit, does it feel better or worse? Mm -hmm. Because our thoughts really are the core of how we feel and then how we show up in the world and interact with other people. So there's a variety of things we can do. You can see a therapist if that's within your reach. 
Um, but you don't have to seek a therapist to get better as well. And it's not accessible for some people. I do understand that. But try to be connected. Try to understand yourself better. Mm-hmm. Um, try to just be compassionate and know that hard things happen to us. And we're all just doing our best to survive. And so go easy on yourself while trying to understand yourself better, Mm. I think is a good start. Again, beautifully stated. And you brought up so many great points for us all to investigate. What I hear you saying, it all starts within. Know yourself. Know what works for you, whether it's uh, medication, whether it's the holistic way, and definitely what we're putting in our body investigate, investigate, do your part to understand the reactions you're getting and the ones you're not and take note, write it down, do what you need to do to really stay focused on what's working and what's not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Miss Lola. I'm definitely looking forward to you coming on as our clinician uh, and explaining what's near and dear to your heart as far as what you're doing in your practice and helping educate the community on what mental health is, what mental diseases exist and how we can take action both personally and as a community. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tell the people once again where they can find you. I'm Lola Oshinkoya. You can find me on my website, neitherbothcom N-E-I-T-H-E-R. B-O-T-H dot com. I am on Instagram at neither both. That's where I'm active. <laughs> yes. Yes, she is. Check her out. She's brilliant. She's wonderful. She's beautiful. And I will leave all of her glorious information in the show notes. So you all stay tuned. And until next time, we're out. Hey, I hope you all enjoyed this show and most of all pulled something of value from it. This show was put together intentionally with community in mind. We know it's been a very trying year and would like to provide information that can help us become better together. All that being stated, discussing mental health can be triggering for some and diagnosis can be either disturbing or affirming, as Alola put it. But it is all about framework too, meaning it's not all about giving labels to define you. Rather, insurance coverage wants to know that your symptoms are impacting your ability to function in your everyday life so that they will have that reasoning to pay for your services. And to be able to do that, there has to be the framework. As Alola described ever so clearly in this episode, she also discussed what characteristics depression, anxiety, and trauma take on and gave insight on what to do if you experience any of those symptoms. Now, here is a quick takeaway from Lola's breakdowns. 1. Depression. It is a spectrum of many symptoms, including diminished mood, sleep issues, fatigue, changes in appetite, excessive guilt, moving and speaking in slow motion, romanticizing death, or in extreme cases, planning your demise. 2. Anxiety. Having an anxious mood, worrying a lot or uncontrollably, or feeling as if something bad is in fact going to happen. Three, trauma. 
This one is very complex and can mean a lot of different things. Post-traumatic stress disorder or complex PTSD can be a series of smaller events or a big event. Complex trauma is likely repeated traumas that happen over the course of a lifetime, like systematic abuse or emotional abuse, from my understanding. And you're not seeing scars but that pain and maltreatment is there and was done. And trauma is experienced by the way we react to what was done. Just because you've been through trauma does not mean you are traumatized. What matters is how you react to what happened to you and if it has changed the way you think. Trauma is your inability to cope with what the event was at the time that that event happened. Four, go easy on yourself while trying to understand yourself Better. Now, that is a direct quote from Lola. She stated when discussing her suggestions of healing and taking care of our minds, especially when dealing with depression, anxiety, and trauma. All right. Thanks so much for sitting in on this conversation. I do look forward to rocking with you all here on this platform next week with something short, sweet, and valuable. Come back, check it out. And until then, catch me on IG. So much love to you all. Per usual, take what you need. Leave what you don't. Be love, be light, and be you.